Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Well, good morning. Let's speak the name of Jesus today. How about it? Amen. Well, we welcome all of you, whether you're joining us online or you're here on our campus. We thank you for being here and being a part of our worship time this morning. We're in our second week of our three-week series looking at the parable of the prodigal son. Many years ago, I was pastoring a church where they still had the children's sermon. Now, some of you don't know what that is. Many of you do, but children's sermon was a time in the midst of the morning worship when all the little ones would come to the front and gather in front of the pulpit area, and the pastor would come down and do a little Bible study or a little sermonette on their level. And in this particular church, I had a little friend in that group named Willie. And Willie was an adorable child. You just loved him and liked to be around him, but he was a wild card. You did not know exactly what Willie was going to do or say at any given moment. And so we had some interesting children's sermons as I asked questions, and Willie was always the first to respond. On this particular Sunday, I was talking to him about Daniel in the lion's den, and I'd gotten to the point where I was talking about the king placing Daniel in the hole there with the lions, and I asked the question, what do you think happened next? Well, Willie, without hesitation, was the first to answer. They eated him. And so I assured Willie that was a good answer. That was a logical answer, the expected answer. You would think the lions would eat him, but they didn't. And he looked at me with this puzzled little look, and he said, they didn't eat him? And I said, no, and I began to fill in the rest of the story and talk about God's protection over him as he was there in the lion's den. And I finished up my story and my illustrations, and, and I told them they could go back and sit with their parents. And so everybody else gets up and heads back, and Willie lingers. And he looks at me one last time and said, they didn't eat at him? And I said, no, Willie, they didn't. Now go back and sit with your mom and dad. So he got just about back to where his mom and dad were, And in an amazed voice that the entire congregation could hear, he goes, Daddy, they didn't eat at them. (laughs) Well, you know, Willie, as I asked the question, he went the logical way. I mean, what would you think? You got thrown into the lion's den, into the hole with the lions. The logical thing is they devoured him. Now, that's not what happened, but it's logical. It's also the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is the lions devoured him. Well, when it comes to the parable of the prodigal son, as Jesus is telling this story, he takes it to the worst case scenario. As he's telling this story, he is painting a picture of a young man who is so rebellious, so terrible that his audience, as they're listening to it that day, are just amazed. They can't quite understand how this could happen, how that could be a son this bad. And so as they listen to it, it's not just attention getting, it is shocking to them. In fact, it's what you would call gasp worthy. And so they listen to this story from Jesus and they're just amazed at what he's telling them. So let's go ahead and read the story again this morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15 and we're going to begin reading in verse 11. And he said, 
there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now last week we focused in on the father in the story. This week we're going to focus in on the younger son. Next week we'll look at the older son as we finish up. But as we think about this and look at it, we've got to remember what I said last week. We've got to look at it with, new, with first century eyes and listen to it with first century ears. In other words, we've got to hear what Jesus is saying as the scribes and the Pharisees, the tax collectors and the sinners would have heard it and how they would have thought and how they would have responded in all of this. In the first century, the Jewish society in particular, but culture in general was very much built on a shame-honor kind of system. In other words, you were supposed to live your life in a way that, if possible, brought as little shame to you as they could, and you were also to try to bring the most honor you could into your life. And that also applied with giving honor to those who were deemed worthy. And one of the kind of foundations of all of this teaching were the Ten Commandments. And luckily, we've just finished a series on the Ten Commandments. And so we know and understand some of that. The fifth commandment said, honor your father and your mother. So that's one of the main foundations of this shame honor system. You were to honor your parents. Paul says the same thing and reminds us of that when he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says to them, children, obey your parents. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with promise, he says. And so with that mindset, with that thought process there, Jesus begins to share this story of this young man who's done anything but honoring his father, honoring his parents. And so as these people are listening to this story, they're going to be shocked by what they hear. 
In fact, if there had been texting back then, you can almost bet on it that that would have been a blast of those shocked face emojis going out to all of their friends and family over what they were hearing from Jesus right now. Look at verse 12. It says, And the younger of them said to his father, Give me the share of property that's coming to me. Remember, last week we talked about this. This was the equivalent in that day of time of this young man going up to his father and saying, I wish you were dead. And in the shame and honor society in which these people are hearing this, the culture of that day, I mean, it would have been just beyond belief for them. And yet here it is. And so they're listening to this young man who is so rebellious, so dishonoring that he would come and ask his dead this ridiculous, slanderous request. And so what are the listeners expecting the father to do? I mean, he has come with this utterly shameful request. What was expected of the father at that point in time? Well, at the very least, he would have grabbed him by his clothes and slapped him across the face for everybody to see. So all of the community, all the rest of the family would know, would have known how outrageous this young man's request was. Or maybe even worse, he would have actually beaten him extensively. Or he probably would have declared him dead. Dead to him, the father, dead to the family, Dead to the community. That's what they're waiting to hear, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes. They're sitting there going, all right, now, get him. But what's Jesus say? And he divided his property between them. Now, I'm going to tell you what. We're talking about shame and honor. This is almost as shameful to the hearers as what the son did. For the father to act like this was a shameful thing. That's not what fathers in that day did. But this one did. He divided the property among them. Remember, we need to listen to it with first century ears as we're hearing this story. So there'd be more shocked emojis, even that little puzzled, confused one that's out there. All of those would have been going out because this is unlike anything they've heard before. But remember, Jesus was trying to teach them and he's trying to teach us about God. And one of the things that he's teaching us is this. God's grace will sometimes allow us to go so far that in the end we realize how much we need him. God's grace will let us go so far in the hopes that we'll come to know that we need him. He talks about that as he wrote to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He says he let them go. He let them do what they said they wanted to do. Now, those of us that have been around church for a while, those of us that have maybe read in the book of Romans, right away we're thinking of the fact that a lot of first chapter of Romans has to do with sexual things, sexual perversions. 
And so that's what we go. We think, well, that's what Paul's talking about right there. But it's more than that. In fact, look at the verses after that. Verses 29 and following. He tells us some of the paths you can take in this rebellion against God. He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, there's a lot of roads that God will allow us to take. Disobedient to parents. Heartless. What are some of the roads you and I have journeyed down in our lifetimes? That God allowed us to go. But he allowed us to go. God lets us take those journeys in the hope that we'll turn back to him. Again, in Romans Chapter 8, he talks about that. He says it's in hope that he let them go. It's in hope they let them go with the desire that they would come back and return to him. And so God allows that to happen in our lives. And in this parable that Jesus is telling, the, the father allows that to happen in the life of his son. He'll let us go down that path. But it's always with the hope that we come back. So he says, here's your stuff. Here's what you want. And so the son wastes no time. Look at verse 13. He says, not many days later, the son gathered all that he had and took the journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property. So the son came to the father and he says, Give me my stuff. And we see a hint of what's taking place here in the fact that Jesus doesn't use the normal word for inheritance here. He uses a word that means a portion of the substance. See, when the son comes to him with this demand, what he comes to him and he's saying is, I don't want my estate. In other words, I don't want to have my part of the property where I can build a home and establish a living here. In the words of the characters from Jerry Maguire, what he says to him is, show me the money. He says, I want the money so that I can go out and do and live as I want to. I don't want anything to do with your restrictions. I don't want to do anything with the inheritance as it would normally be distributed. I just want the money so I can live the way I want to live. And so he rushes out to do that and he goes out and he begins to spend and he begins to lavishly just throw his money around and doing that, guess what happens? He has all sorts of friends that have come up. But you got to put them in quotes, don't you? Because they're not real friends, they're fair weather friends. They're friends that are attracted to his money. And so he begins the process of living in this riotous rebellious living. I want you to understand something. Hear me clearly this morning. 
He's excited to live and to participate and receive all the pleasures that the world has to give him, all the things that Satan will lay out before him. But understand this. Satan doesn't want to give you things to make you happy. He's got an ulterior motive. Now, we're blessed to live down at Lake Gaston. And I'm not a fisherman per se, but everybody else is. And so there are boats out there in front of our house all the time. Folks out there fishing. Well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. They are not out there giving food to the fish because they're worried that the fish are hungry. <laughs> they are not dropping crickets and worms down in the water to make sure the fish get fed. They're attached to a hook. And it's bait to lure them and trap them. And that's how Satan works. Now, I'm not foolish enough to think that sin doesn't bring pleasure. If it wasn't pleasurable at the beginning, we wouldn't do it, right? It seems good. It seems enjoyable. It seems fun. But I'm going to tell you from observation, from personal experience, and from the Word of God... The pleasure of sin doesn't last. But the hook and the trap do. And we look at the story of this this young man. We see that it says he squandered his property, squandered his money, squandered all that he'd gotten from the father. And that word squandered is actually an agricultural term, and it had to do with winnowing grain. In other words, separating the chaff from the grain in that process. And the way they would do it, as it's described here with this idea of squandering, they would have this huge rake that they would put up under, and they would throw it all up in the air. And then the wind would come by and catch the chaff and blow that away, and that's how they'd separate it, and the good came back down. So in essence, what Jesus is saying here is he took everything that the father had given him and he blew it. He took all of this that had been his and he blew it. And so now he finds himself in an interesting place. You know, before I said he was the center of attention when he's spending his money freely on everything and everybody. But now that he doesn't have any money... All of a sudden, he's alone. And it couldn't get any worse than this, right? Oh, yeah, it could. Let's look at the next verse. Let's look at verse 14. It says, and when he had spent everything, now he's totally out of money, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Come on, Jesus. I mean, this is your story. You're, you're making this story up. A parable is not a real story. It's a lesson that he's trying to teach. Why would you throw in? Wasn't it bad enough that he lost everything, that he made a fool of himself? Now you're going to throw in a famine? What's the purpose of the famine in this story? I think there's several things that are there. But the main thing is this. It's just a continuation in the downward spiral in which he finds his life. He left and rebelled, uh, rebelled and left the father. And now after 
spending everything, wasting everything, blowing everything. Now it continues to go down as the famine hits. Now, did he cause the famine in his life? Obviously not. But you know what he did do? By his choices, by his decision-making process, he put himself in the place to experience the famine. Look at what it says there again in verse 14. It says, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. In that country. See, it wasn't worldwide. The famine wasn't everywhere. In fact, if you look ahead, things were pretty good back home. Pretty things were, well, things were pretty good where his dad was, and he acknowledges that. He said, there are folks back there working on my dad's farm who have plenty. He says, everything's good back there. But you see, his decisions put him in this place. He thought he was on the mountaintop, but now all of a sudden he's come crashing back down to ground. And he thinks, surely this is the worst it could be. But it got worse. Let's continue reading. Verse 15 says, so he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now for a Jewish man, that was as bad as it gets. Now he is, basically what scripture says, he's, he attached himself to this guy. In other words, he's begging, he's pleading. So just give me something. And it says the guy sends him out into the fields to feed the pigs. That was the lowest of low for the Jewish man because the pig was such an unclean animal to them. Now, I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing wrong with being a hog farmer. I grew up on a farm, and part of our livelihood came from raising hogs, raising pigs. But they are nasty creatures. They are messy. They are dirty. They do make a big mess. And I'm going to tell you something. When you're walking around in a pig pen, it's not all mud you're stepping in. (laughs) It's nasty. And for him, it was even nastier than it would be for us. He is in the bottom. He's in the pits. But it's at that point in time that he has an aha moment. Now, what's an aha moment? Well, it's defined as this. A point in time when one has a sudden insight or realization. Look at verse 17. It says, but when he came to himself. Some of your translations will say when he came to his senses. He's having an aha moment, a moment of realization, a moment of insight. And so we're going to think about it both in terms of its definition of what an aha moment is, but I also want to use it as an acrostic. I want to take those letters, A-H-A, to describe the stages that he's going through. You see, his aha moment began first with an awakening. He has an awakening. 
all of a sudden it dawns on him where he is. Now, he knew he was in a pig pen before this moment. He, he had figured that out. He was not stupid. But he has a realization that what he left is far better than where he is. It's starting to sink in to him. You know, throughout this chapter, as Jesus is sharing these stories, he's talking about the sheep and the coin and the son, and he's talking about being lost and found. And all of that is an illustration of salvation, of being found by Christ, being saved by Christ. And so he's sharing all of this with us, and he's letting them know that what he's talking about is this salvation experience and that it's more than what we can do for ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of your works, so that no one can boast. So he's sharing with us in this process about God the Father. He's sharing with us in this process about God's grace and mercy. And so he has this awakening moment. And then he moves from the awakening to the honesty of the moment. Look again at verse 18. He says, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he has a moment of honesty with God and with himself because, see, it might have been easy for him to try to shift the blame. He could have shifted the blame to all those folks who took advantage of him. All of these so-called friends who I've now discovered aren't friends, but they're the ones that made me waste my money and use up all of my money. Or maybe he could have blamed it on the economy. I mean, I think I could have turned it around. I think I could have made it if we just hadn't had this famine. But that's not what he does. He comes to God in honesty. Folks, listen to me. God will not forgive and heal excuses. If you're making excuses in your life for the way it is now in your rebellion and your distance from God, God cannot heal that. But he can heal true repentance. In Psalm 51, the psalmist writes, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. So he has an awakening. He has a moment of honesty before God and before himself. And then that brings us to the last day, and that's action. The definition of repentance is the action of repenting. The action of changing our hearts, changing our minds, changing our direction. And so as this young man is looking at his life and where he is and how he got there, he realizes he can't do anything about it. The world around him can't do anything about it. The only place to turn is to the Father. And so he turns to the Father. 
And what happens next in the story is going to leave the scribes and the Pharisees so confused. But it's going to bring hope to the tax collector and sinners. Look at verse uh, 20. He says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. See, what we're seeing here is the grace of the father. You know, we can look at that idea of the father running to him and we know from what we've studied before that, man, that was just odd. It was not something that was done. I mean, a a Jewish man, especially one of prominence as this man obviously was, he's not going to pull his robes up to run because one, he's going to expose his legs and they just didn't do that. And the second thing is Jewish men didn't run. Kids ran, Jewish men didn't run. And so they said, we've never heard of anybody like this. And that's the whole point, folks. Jesus is telling them about a father they've never heard about before. He's telling them the God that you've known, that you've been taught, that's not who God is. God is a God who comes to us. He doesn't wait for the son to get there. He goes running to him. And that's the same that's true for us. God comes to us. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He's talking about Jesus, and he said he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, but God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God came to us. And so he comes running to his son there. And and look at what takes place. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And the answer to that is, yes, you have. He said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's true. But again, we see the grace of God because God stops him there and he turns to the servants. And what does he say to them? Look at it. He says, he said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. So here we see the father. Turning and saying to his servants, he said, come and take the filthy rags of his sin off of him and put the best robe on him, which was the father's robe. So give him the ring that shows authority and part of the family. Give him shoes that show he's a son and not a servant. Again, this was unheard of to the crowd in front of Jesus that day in the first century. But Jesus is teaching a new understanding of who God is and how God loves us. And so he shares this with them. In verse 24, he tells them, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they did indeed begin to celebrate said he was dead, but now he's alive. 
Well, if you studied scripture any at all, that may sound somewhat familiar to you because in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, with any parable, you got to be careful. You can't base your whole theology on one parable. And remember, Jesus is answering a complaint, a question from, from the Pharisees who said, this man eats, uh, receives sinners and eats with them. So he's primarily addressing that. But in this story is a story of rebellion and repentance and restoration. In this story is a story of sin and Shame and salvation. It's a story that presents God as these people had never heard him before, but it's the God of the Bible. It's the God of the universe. It's a story of the matchless grace of God the Father that reaches out to us where we are. He came running to the Son as he was, where he was, And that's what he does with us. So what do we do with the story today? How do we apply it? How does it react in our lives? Remember, I said back at the beginning that Jesus had painted this story, developed this story to be a worst case scenario. He's taken this young man and painted him as the worst of the worst of sinners. A man who would disrespect his family, disrespect his father, rebel against him. He's the worst of the worst. And what Jesus is saying to us, as he said to them, is that God's grace can reach out to this repentant sinner. God's grace can cover you. There's nothing you've done in your life that takes you so far away that God's grace can't bring you home. As Jesus shares this story, he's reminding us there's always a way home if you repent. There's an old hymn that we used to sing. It says, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. My desire, my prayer for you who are hearing God's word this morning is that you would have an aha moment. That you would awaken and realize that you're far from God. That you would have a moment of honesty and acknowledge how you got there. That you have sinned and turned away from him. And that you would have a moment of action in which you have a change of heart, a change of mind, 
a change of will, a change of direction, and turn to him, the one whose grace makes all the difference. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love and for your matchless grace. We thank you, Father, that in that love you came to us. You sent your son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sins. That we who were lost could be found. That we who were dead in our trespasses and sin could be made alive. Father, touch our hearts here this morning. Whatever our need is, wherever we are, Lord, in our spiritual lives, from those, Lord, that today need to put their faith and their trust in Jesus. They need to repent and turn to you, Lord. Would today be the day they do it? For those of us, Lord, who are believers, but, Lord, maybe we haven't been living that as clearly and as closely as we should, would today be the day where we commit ourselves, Lord, to be the children you've called us to be. Whatever our need is, God, Show us. Lord, convict us and move us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.